Okay, let, let's try this again. Just uh, just a few technical difficulties there. We're gonna gonna get everything sorted. All right. So, how did the war in Ukraine? All right. How did it become a matter of good and evil? How did it become sacred? Right. And best way to perhaps understand this is by looking at uh, the Watergate controversy. So. Watergate, in and of itself, not not a big deal. Aha, yeah, I've got the the, the good-looking video right back. All right, now we're, we're rocking and rolling. All right, so let's look at Watergate as a, as a shift from a grubby news story to an epic battle of good and evil, and then you can apply this to great power politics. Adolf Hitler had a lot of admiration for the United States because he admired the ruthless way that it expanded the way it wiped out the Indians, the way it uh, went to war with the Spanish, uh, went to war with the Mexicans, uh, just carved out all the territory that it wanted. And the only thing that prevented the United States from moving south and taking charge of the Caribbean is the, the internal American conflict over slavery. So that was the impediment. But Hitler admired and somewhat modeled himself on the ruthlessness of the American approach. Right. So that's great power politics. What Russia is doing in Ukraine is very similar to what uh, the United States has, has done over the course of its history to whoever got in its way. So I was just reading an interesting book by Professor Jeffrey Alexander, 2003 book, The Meanings of Social Life and Cultural Sociology. And so he talks about how grubby was just this, uh, Watergate was just this grubby news story. It, it didn't have, you know, great significance. Then it became an epic story of good versus evil. Same too with the war in Ukraine. You've got grubby great power politics. Russia is doing what great powers do. They dominate their backyard and they do not permit peer competitors in their backyard. Right? Remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Russia, Soviet Union wanted to put missiles in Cuba. The United States said no. Remember the Monroe Doctrine? The United States essentially says that Latin America doesn't get its own foreign policy. Latin America has to follow the foreign policy dictates of the United States. So if China wanted to set up a base in Mexico, right, it's just not going to, the United States is just not going to put up with that because it, it threatens our sovereignty. Great powers are not going to permit another great power to you know, set up next door. Right, and that the same with Russia. Russia is simply operating out of its own, out of its own national interests. Okay, I think we've got a sharp video again. Here we go. So, June 1972, employees of the Republican Party made an illegal entry and burglary into the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate Hotel in Washington D.C. So, Republicans described the break-in as a third-rate burglary as neither politically motivated nor morally relevant. Democrats said it was a major act of political espionage, a symbol of a demagogic and amoral Republican President Richard Nixon and his staff. Americans were not persuaded by this more extreme reaction. The incident received relatively little attention and generated no real sense of outrage at the time. There were no cries of outrage. There was, in the main, deference to the president, respect for his authority, and the belief that his explanation of this event was correct, despite what in retrospect seemed like strong evidence to the contrary. So with the few exceptions, the mass news media decided after a short time to play down the Watergate story. 
not because they were coercively prevented from doing otherwise, but because they genuinely felt it to be a relatively unimportant event. So Watergate remained part of the profane world. Even after the election in November, even after Democrats have been pushing the Watergate issue for four months, 80% of the American people found it hard to believe that there was a Watergate crisis. 75% felt what had occurred was just plain politics. 84% felt that they had heard about it and it did not influence their vote. Two years later, however, the same incident still called Watergate had initiated the most serious peacetime political crisis in American history. It had become a riveting moral symbol, one that initiated a long passage through sacred time and space and wrenching conflict between pure and impure sacred forms. And Watergate ended up being responsible for the first voluntary resignation of a president. Screwed, said Mr. Hermanson, who is white. It seems to me we're pretty close to a fair a fall. This, this is uh, Jeffrey Alexander. Who I was just more than from. two dozen voters in key political battleground states, Republicans, Democrats, and independents of diverse ages, races, and social classes. They all expressed worries that their nation has careened off track with problems no election could easily solve. Fiercely polarized over public health, public safety, and perhaps truth itself, many people are united in their collective anxiety. 40 years ago, in her book, A Distant Mirror, Barbara Tuckman's haunting account of how the Black Death dropped the curtain on the Middle Ages. The author insisted that, quote, an event of great agony is bearable only in the belief that it will bring about a better world. And if it does not, she argued, then, quote, disillusion is deep and moves on to self-doubt and self-disgust. That warning issued more than four decades ago vividly describes the situation we're in today. All right, this is uh, Jeffrey Alexander. He's a sociologist at Yale. He's delivering a talk there July 2nd of 2020. The talk's called The Double Whammy Trauma. Anyway, here he is on Watergate, and it fits pretty closely with the same situation in Ukraine. So how and why did this perception of Watergate change, and how and why is Russia versus Ukraine regarded as an epic story of good versus evil. And I have no problem with that conception. All right, I, I'm not here to say you should not view Russia versus Ukraine as, as good and evil. I find myself very emotionally siding with Ukraine, the, the plucky underdog against, you know, big bad Russia. So why did we have this extraordinary change in public perceptions, right? The actual event, Watergate, was inconsequential. So facts don't necessarily speak right facts do not speak watergate could not tell itself it had to be told by society right it was the context of watergate that changed not so much the facts of watergate right and so too with the the grubby great power politics of russia invading ukraine it's not the fact of that battle that leads to the news media and and public life discussing this in epic terms of good versus evil it's context, its situation, its meeting emotional needs and needs for importance, right? Political life occurs most of the time in relatively mundane levels of goals, power, and interest. Now, above this grubby level, operating a little higher level, are norms, right and wrong, conventions, customs, laws that regulate political process and struggle. Then above that, 
you've got values, right? General elemental aspects of culture that inform the codes that regulate political authority and norms within which specific interests are resolved. If politics operates routinely, the conscious attention of political participants is on goals and interests. It's just grubby. It's specific. So it's just profane and routine, right? These, these uh, struggles between different interest groups, they're not seen as violating more general values and norms. So non-routine politics begins when the tension between these levels is felt, either because a shift in the nature of the political or a shift in the general, more sacred commitments that are held to regulate them. And so we get a tension between goals and higher levels of morality. Public attention shifts from political goals to more general concerns, to right and wrong, to norms and values that are now perceived as in danger. So we now have a public consciousness about uh, right and wrong. So Watergate was initially seen as just politics by 75% of the American people. Two years after the break-in, by the summer of 1974, public opinion had sharply changed. Now Watergate was regarded as an issue that violated fundamental customs of morality. Right, 50% of the population saw Watergate as a challenge to the most sacred values that sustain political order itself. And it wasn't Watergate that had changed. It was the context. It was our society that had changed. Right? We, we had the trial on TV, essentially, in the U.S. Senate. So by the end of this two-year period, about half of those who had voted for Nixon had changed their mind. Two-thirds of all voters thought Watergate has now gone far beyond politics, now threatened the very moral fabric of our society, which is happening with this Russia-Ukraine conflict. It's, uh, it's beyond politics, right? This isn't just politics by other means. This is threatening the whole moral fabric of Western civilization. So what must happen for an entire society to experience such a fundamental crisis followed by a ritual renewal, right? There has to be sufficient social consensus that an event was polluting, deviant, right? Not just a mere fragment of the society, a strong consensus by much of society that that we've had an event that is polluting. Once you get that sufficient consensus, then society becomes aroused and indignant. Then there has to be a perception by significant groups who participate in this consensus that the event is not only deviant, but it threatens to pollute the center, the sanctuary, the, the burning core of society, the most sacred places, right? It's been touched in... Society has been fingered. It's been finger-bombed. What, what, what are the various... Uh, aphorisms for uh, fingering someone, uh, finger-bombing, right? Society has been finger-bombed in its most sacred place, all right? The clitoris of American democracy has been finger-bombed. Third, if this uh, deep crisis is to be resolved, institutional social controls must be brought into play. So even legitimate attacks on the polluting sources of crisis are viewed as frightening. So we need to mobilize society to bring the forces of pollution to heal. Fourth, we need social control mechanisms. We must mobilize the elites. Fifth, there must be an effective process of symbolic interpretation. So many, much of the same processes we just learned about in, in this week's Torah portion. We need ritual and purification processes that continue the labeling, enforce the strength of the symbolic sacred center of society. Don't finger the clitoris of American democracy. All right? Because we've come to see the, the, the center of American society, the, the White House, as increasingly profane and impure as being fingered. As such processes demonstrate conclusively that deviant and transgressive qualities 
right? The naughtiness of Richard Nixon and his ilk are getting us into trouble. Luke wants Ukraine to win because their flag's colors are the same as UCLA's. So if this deep crisis is to be resolved, institutional social controls must be brought into play. But he... So in the weeks following the break-in at the Democratic headquarters, Watergate existed in semiotic. That just means words. Uh, words are symbols for reality, right? Words are metaphors, symbolic metaphors for reality. So Watergate was just a denotation. The word simply referred to a single event. But in the weeks that followed the denotation Watergate became more complex. It began re referring to a whole series of interrelated events touched off by the break-in, including charges of political corruption, presidential denials, legal suits, and rest. So it wasn't just someone making a pass. It was like a whole pattern of molesting, impurifying, polluting behavior. By August 1972, Watergate had been transformed from a mere sign to a symbol, right? It became a word that didn't just donate actual events, but it connotated multifold moral meaning. So Watergate became a symbol of pollution, embodying a sense of evil and impurity in our midst. So the facts associated with Watergate, those who were immediately associated with crime, the office, the apartment complex, the persons implicated later, were placed on the negative side of a system of symbolic classification. So those persons and institutions responsible for ferreting out and arresting these criminal elements were placed on the positive side. So we got this bifurcated model of pollution and purity that was then superimposed onto the traditional good and evil structure of American civic discourse. So during 1960s struggles, the left invoked critical universalism and rationality and tied these values to social movements for equality and against institutional authority, including the authority of the patriotic state itself. The right evoked particularism, tradition, and the defense of authority in the state and the family. So in the post-1972 election period, critical universalism could now be articulated by centrist forces, wasn't called leftist or Marxist, right? Th this criticism now could be raised in defense of American national patriotism. So we got an emerging consensus and the possibility of a common feeling of moral violation emerged, right? We didn't even realize we'd been raped by Richard Nixon. And with it began the movement toward generalization and consensus. So after the election, in a less politicized atmosphere, it became safer to exercise social control. So the courts, the Justice Department, various bureaucratic agencies, special congressional committees could institute uh, regulations and investigations in a more legitimate way. It wasn't seen as political. It was seen as purifying. Right, And then the effectiveness of these social control institutions legitimated the media's efforts to spread Watergate pollution closer and closer to central institutions. So the exercise of social control, and we're getting ever closer to the center of the White House, reinforces public doubt about whether Watergate was in fact only a limited crime, and all this forces more quote-unquote facts to surface. So we had an ever-growing fear that Watergate would pose a threat to the center of American society, and this spread to increasing portions of the population and to our elites. So the question about proximity to the center, center meaning the White House, Richard Nixon's administration, preoccupied every major group after the 1972 election. So Senator Howard Baker articulated this anxiety with the question that became famous during the summertime Senate hearings. How much did the president know, and when did he know it? 
that this anxiety about the threat to the center of our society intensified this growing sense of pollution, normative violation. We got growing consensus, and this rationalized the invocation of coercive social control by the courts and the FBI. So we began to realign the good and bad sides of the Watergate symbols, which side of the classification system were Nixon and his staff really on. So then we got the televised hearings, which constitute what academics will tell you as a liminal experience, meaning a bounded, separate experience, an experience radically separated from the profane issues and mundane grounds of everyday life. We got a ritual community created for Americans to share. And within this reconstructed community, none of the polarizing issues that had generated the Watergate crisis or the historical justifications that had motivated it could now be raised. All right, so imagine someone had been harassing you for years, then finally you got sick of it and you punched them in the face. But all anyone ever sees is the video of you punching them in the face. There's no context. So now with the Watergate hearings, we, we reconstitute civic culture, which the whole democratic conceptions of political office have depended. We, we've got this whole new world. And the hearings become a world into themselves. They are sui generis. They are unique. They are a world without history. Its characters don't have memorable pasts. So this, these Watergate hearings are, in a very real sense, they are outside of time. The framing devices of the TV medium contribute to the deracination, right? Removing the, the racial and familiar traditional components that produced this Watergate crisis. Then we had the in-camera editing, the repetition, the juxtaposition, the simplification, other techniques that allow the story to become mythical. And that's what we're getting with the war in Ukraine. We wouldn't have this mythical battle of good versus evil if we didn't have all this video that could be expertly edited, repeated, juxtaposed, simplified. So we get this bracketed experience. We get the hushed voices of the announcers. We get the pomp and ceremony of the Watergate trial in the U.S. Senate. And we have the recipe for constructing within the medium of TV a sacred time and a sacred space. And then through TV, tens of millions of Americans participate symbolically and emotionally in the deliberations of the committee, just like millions of Americans can participate in this war in Ukraine. All right. By, we can post things on social media to show that we stand with the plucky underdog. Ewing becomes morally obligatory. Old routines are broken, new ones are formed. And what we see on TV and in social media is a highly simplified drama. We get heroes and villains and we're creating deeply serious symbols. So Nixon administration witnesses in the Watergate hearings appeal to loyalty as the ultimate standard that should govern the relationship between subordinates and authorities. So the Richard Nixon administration witnesses kept referring to family values and each witness brought his wife and children with him if he had them. And you'd see them lined up behind him, prim and proper, providing symbolic links to the tradition, authority, and personal loyalty that, that symbolically bound the groups of backlash culture. The overwhelming concern of most Americans, I think, is whether a better America will emerge from the trauma of COVID and racial violence that Anthony Fauci recently characterized as the double whammy. If Americans do not believe that their agony has produced a better world, I think that not only dissolution, but social upheaval will follow. Now, trauma can be physical, attacking the body, 
It can also be psychological, undermining the emotional security of the self. Each level of trauma has been at the center of American attention, these two levels, since the COVID crisis exploded in early March. Most visible has been the biological. In the 14th century, nobody had any idea what caused the Black Death or how to treat it, much less how to prevent it from ever happening again. Today, thanks to biological science, we know the pandemic is a virus, that it takes over the cellular RNA, manufacturing millions of new viral cells. That oh man, half Galatians complaining that I did the bait and switch. Jeffrey Alexander speaking pure Torah. You just he, He's just doing it in symbolic fashion, right? The, the Torah is there. The Torah is lying on the ground. Hasmashalom, God forbid. All you have to do is pick it up and benefit from it. All you have to do is drink from it. Right. So what symbolic work did the U.S. senators engage in in the 1973 Watergate hearings? All right. They denied the validity of particular sentiments and motives, right? They bracketed the political realities of everyday life and the critical realities of life and just set that aside. So at no time in the hearings did the senators ever refer to the polarized struggles of the day, right? We never hear in the news about Russia's legitimate concerns about uh, Ukraine and having NATO march up to its borders. So the senators, by making those struggles invisible, the news media by making Russia's struggles invisible, denied any moral context for the witnesses' actions. And so just like the U.S. media has denied any moral context to Putin and Russia's actions of invading Ukraine. So this strategy of isolating backlash values was supported by the only positive explanation the senators allowed, namely that the conspirators were just plain stupid. They poked fun at them as utterly devoid of common sense, just like our news media just constantly talks about how mentally ill and depraved and whacked out Vladimir Putin is. No, no normal person could ever conceive of doing what he's doing. So we've got this strategic denial of reality, coupled with a ringing and unabashed affirmation of the universalistic myths of the backbone of American civic culture. And we see this in the coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're, we're invoking the... You know, the, the beauties of democracy and how evil it is to invade another country, even though, of course, we invaded Iraq in 2003 and Afghanistan in 2001. So through their questions, statements, references, gestures, and metaphors, the senators maintained that every American, high or low, rich or poor, acts virtuously in terms of the pure universalism of civic society. Nobody is selfish or inhumane. No American is concerned with money or power at the expense of fair play. America's never invaded anyone. No team loyalty is so strong that it violates common good or makes criticism toward authority unnecessary. Truth and justice are the basis of American political society. Every citizen is rational and will act in accordance with justice if he's just allowed to know the truth. Law is the perfect embodiment of justice, and political office consists of the application of just law to power and force. Max Weber defines power as the ability to force people to do things they don't want to do. Because power corrupts, office must enforce impersonal obligations in the name of people's justice and reason. And we got all these narrative myths that are invoked. They're timeless fables, stories about the origins of English common law, narratives about the exemplary behavior of America's most sacred presidents. John Dean, the most compelling anti-Nixon witness, embodied the American detective myth. This figure of authority is derived from the Puritan tradition, 
in countless different stories is portrayed as ruthlessly pursuing truth and injustice without emotion or vanity. We've got other narratives developed in a different way for administration witnesses who confessed the committee's priests granted forgiveness in accord with well-established ritual forms and their conversions to the cause of righteousness constituted fables for the remainder of the proceedings, just like when uh, Russian soldiers give themselves up and surrender and, and confess that they don't know what they're doing in Ukraine, then they're, they're granted uh, forgiveness. The senator's question centered on three principal themes, each fundamental to the moral anchoring of civic democratic society. They emphasize the absolute priority of office obligations over personal one. Once this is a nation of laws, not men, was a constant refrain. Of course, all laws are made by men and they are enforced by men. They emphasize the embeddedness of such office obligations in a higher transcendent authority. The laws of men must give way to the laws of God. Or as Sam Irvin, the committee chairman, put it tomorrow, stands the ill-fated treasurer of Nixon's committee to re-elect the president. Which is more important, not violating laws or not violating ethics? Finally, the senators insisted that this transcendental anchoring of interest conflicts allowed America to be truly solid, a concrete universal. As Senator Law Weicker famously put it, Republicans do not cover up. Republicans do not go ahead and threaten. God knows Republicans don't view their fellow Americans as enemies to be harassed, but as human beings to be loved and won. Now, no more times these statements would be greeted with derision, with hoots and with cynicism, just like in no more times, much of the coverage of this Russian invasion of Ukraine would be greeted with derision. Uh, many of the, the statements were just plain lies in terms of the specific empirical reality of everyday political life. But they weren't laughed at and they weren't hooted down. The reason was, this was not everyday life. Russia invading Ukraine, it's not everyday life. This has become a sacred conflict. Right? It's no longer a power conflict. It's a sacred conflict. With, it's good versus evil. Right? We've got a ritualized and liminal event, a separate event, a period of intense generalization that has powerful claims to truth. It's a sacred time. The hearing chambers have become a sacred place. Ukraine's become a sacred space. The Watergate Committee was evoking luminescent values. was not trying to describe empirical fact. So on a mythical level, the statements could be seen and understood as true, as embodying the normative aspirations of the American people. And that's how they were seen, and that's how they were understood by significant parts of our population. That, make, that attack the respiratory system while keeping the body's immune processes at bay. Because science understands the biology of our trauma, we also know how to protect ourselves from it. Social distance, masks, hand washing. We do not yet know how to cure the illness nor how to prevent this physical trauma from happening again. But the combination of scientific medicine and big pharma capitalism makes us pretty confident for Anthony Fauci to a near certainty that eventually we will know these things and be able to resolve COVID trauma at the level of the body. Emotional trauma has also exploded during the time of COVID. The human psyche translates fear of biological injury and the separation from others that prevents it into high. Okay, so here's the symbolic classification system that was operating in August 1972. Evil, the Watergate Hotel, the burglars, the dirty tricksters, the money raisers. Good, Nixon, FBI, courts, Justice Department's prosecution team, the federal watchdog bureaucracy. In American civil culture, evil was communism, fascism, shadowy enemies, crime, corruption, personalism, bad presidents, hiding in grant, great scandals, teapot dome. Good, democracy, the White House, Americanism, law, honesty, responsibility, great presidents such as Lincoln and Washington, and heroic reformers. But 
two years later, the symbols had changed dramatically. And once again, with Russia versus Ukraine, it's all about the symbols and separating what's really going on and uh, turning it into a myth. So by August 1973, evil, you had Watergate, hotel, burglars, dirty tricksters, money raisers, employers of creep, committee to reelect the president of the Republican Party, former U.S. Attorney John Mitchell, Secretary of Treasury, and the president's closest aides. Good. Still the White House, the FBI, the Justice Department, Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, and Senators Irvin, Weicker, and Baker. Then, in American civil culture, good meant great presidents, rogue reformers, democracy, things like that. By 1974, the symbols had changed once again as this whole event becomes ritualized and sacred. Anxiety. Ontological security is undermined by precarity. The paranoid imagination runs rampant. Waves of fear and trembling wash over our psyches. Reports about emotional experience have permeated factional and fictional media throughout this crisis. Here's another quote from that same story in the Times a few days ago. A third of Americans were showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression at the end of April, according to an emergency weekly survey of American households carried out by the Census Bureau. In early May, half of these of those surveyed said they felt, quote, down, depressed, or hopeless. Double the number who responded that way in a 2014 survey. This is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, said Eric Widener, 28, the manager of a restaurant in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, on his way to work last week for the first day of the state's opening for food service. <clears throat> There's a new genre of COVID nightmares. Pre prescriptions for psychotropic medications are way up. So is alcohol consumption. We know a great deal about emotional responses to this coronavirus. Okay, so the war in Ukraine has become pictured as a struggle for the, for the soul of the world, right? It's a sacred struggle. And are you on the side of good or are you on the side of evil? And uh, Watergate simply became a, a battle for the soul of the American Republic. Uh, Watergate had been committed in the name of a cultural and political backlash. Values that contradicted universalism, critical rationality, and tolerance. And uh, Republicans tried to urge the audience to return to the polarized climate of the 1960s. They wanted to justify their actions by appealing to patriotism, to the need for stability, to forego that which is un-American, to the deviant qualities of McGovern and the left. They wanted to argue against cosmopolitanism, which uh, undermined respect for tradition and neutralized the uh, commitments to, to family and to nation and to flag. Right. So the administration witnesses appealed to loyalty as the ultimate value. Now, the U.S. senators' families were utterly invisible, so how did they play the game? You had Sam Irvin, who was always armed with the Bible and the Constitution. The senators embodied transcendent justice, divorced from personal or emotional concerns. And then you had all these rituals, such as the swearing-in of witnesses, raising their right hands. Each swore to tell the truth before God and man. Right? So this had the important function of ensuring moral degradation. It reduced the famous and the powerful to the status of every man place them in subordinate positions 
vis-a-vis the overpowering universalistic law of the land. So the hearings ended without making law, without issuing specific judgments of evidence, but they had profound effects. They established and legitimated a framework that gave the Watergate crisis its meaning. So it gave Americans a clear picture of what is good and evil. The good guys of the Watergate process were purified in this sacralizing process through their identification with the Constitution, norms of fairness, and citizen solidarity. The perpetrators of Watergate were polluted by association with the symbols of civic evil, sectarianism, self-interest, and particularistic loyalty. The hearings restructured the linkages between Watergate elements and the nation's political center. And now it became clear that the powerful men surrounding President Nixon were implacably associated with Watergate evil, and Nixon's most outspoken enemies were linked to Watergate good. So the American public found the presidential party and the elements of civic sacredness more and more difficult to bring together. Then uh, had Archibald Cox. He was seen as fighting on the side of good. President Nixon fired him. And there was a massive outpouring of spontaneous public anger, which newspaper reporters immediately dubbed the Saturday Night Massacre. So Americans seem to view Archibald Cox firing as a profanation, right? Make profane, to make dirty. The attachments that they had built up during the Senate hearings, the commitments they had to newly revivified sacred tenets and against certain diabolical values and tabooed actors. So Americans had identified their own positive values and hopes with Archibald Cox, and their, his firing made them fear for the pollution of their own ideals and themselves. So this event promoted public outrage and an explosion of public opinion. Three million letters were sent to the White House in protest over a single weekend. So the anxiety of Americans was deepened by the fact that pollution had now spread directly to the very figure who was supposed to hold American civil religion together, the president himself. So by firing Archibald Cox, President Nixon came into direct contact with the molten law of sacred impurity. The pollution that Watergate carried now spread to the very center of American social structure. Then you got congressional motions for impeachment. Then you had another expansion of pollution occurred when you got the transcripts of White House conversations secretly taped. So these tapes contain numerous examples of presidential deceit. They were laced with presidential expletives and ethnic slurs. There was great public indignation at Nixon's behavior. By his words and his recorded actions, he had polluted the very tenets that the entire Watergate process had revived, the sacredness of truth and the image of America as an inclusive, tolerant community. So the symbolic and structural centers of American society were separated, with Nixon increasingly pushed into the polluted evil side of the Watergate dichotomy. So much of the indignation over Nixon's foul language was informed by conservative beliefs about proper behavior and civil decorum, beliefs that had flagrantly violated by Nixon's enemies, the left, during the polarized period that preceded the Watergate crisis. So here's another bloke that I've been reading. I think he's on the organ here. Get it, mate.
Okay, a little bit more here from Jeffrey Alexander talking about uh, Watergate as democratic ritual. So when we start getting maneuverings for a, an impeachment trial in the House, the big question was whether President Nixon would be convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors. That's the constitutional phrase that set forth the standard for impeachment. Nixon supporters argued for a narrow interpretation, and his opponents argued for a broad interpretation that would include issues of political morality, irresponsibility, and deceit. So this was a debate over the level of systemic crisis. Was it just legal issues involved, or did this crisis reach all the way to the most general values underpinning the entire system? So given the highly ritualized format of the hearings and the tremendous symbolism that had preceded the committee's deliberations, hardly seemed possible the committee could have adopted anything other than the broad interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors. And then we we got the media's ever-recurring emphasis on the politicians' fairness and objectivity of their procedures, right? Journalists kept remarking on how congressmen rose to the occasion, presented themselves not as political representatives of particular interest, but as embodiments of sacred civil documents and democratic mores. So this transcendence of wide partisan division was echoed by cooperation among the Judiciary Committee's staff, which set the tone for the committee's formal televised deliberations. The key members of the staff had been critics of the establishment during the 1960s, but the whole partisan background never publicly surfaced during the vast journalistic coverage of the committee's work. Even right-wing conservatives never made an issue of it. Why? Because this committee, like its Senate counterpart a year before, existed in a detached, sacred place. They operated within sacred time, their deliberations continuous not with the immediate partisan past, but with the great constitutive moments of the American Republic. They were framed as the great patriots, just like those who signed the Declaration of Independence, created the U.S. Constitution, and resolved the crisis of the Union that started the Civil War. So we've got this sacred, transcendent space moved even many conservative members of the committee, Southerners whose constituents voted for Nixon by landslide proportions, to act out of conscience rather than for political expedience. And the Southern Bloc formed the key to the majority coalition that emerged to support three articles of impeachment. Then after Nixon resigned from office, the relief of the American society was palpable. President Gerald Ford took over, and there were a series of symbolic transformations that indicated ritualistic changes. President Ford, in his first words after taking office, announced that our long national nightmare is over. Newspaper headlines proclaimed the sun had finally broken through the clouds, that a new day was born. Americans effused about the strength and unity of the country. Ford was transformed through these special rituals and rites from a bumbling partisan leader into a national healer, the incarnation of the good guy who embodied the highest standards of ethical and political behavior. Then, within a few months, we return to the grubby, normal world of politics. And uh, Jimmy Carter was elected as this change, but uh, many of the, the sacred values that supposedly been fought for with Watergate, they started getting in the way of getting things done. So... In the immediate post-Watergate period, we had this heightened sensitivity to the general meaning of political office. and What is democratic responsibility? And we got a whole series of scandals, right? When we, when we magnify our, our moral vision, we see Koreagate and, and Billygate and Winegate and then 
later we get Monica Gate. Then we had a whole series of unprecedented congressional investigations. Nelson Rockefeller, Ford's vice presidential nominee, was subjected to a long and heated TV inquiry into the possible misuses of his personal wealth. He had enormous televised investigations launched by Congress into the secret of an anti-democratic workings of the CIA and the FBI. These are institutions whose patriotic authority had previously been unquestioned. But these little Watergates extended well into the Carter administration. Jimmy Carter's chief assistant, Burt Lance, was forced out of office for you know, minor, minor league uh, impropriety. Each of these investigations created scandals in their own right. And they followed often down to the smallest detail and were the symbolic forms established by Watergate. You got all these new reform movements generated from the Watergate spirit. We got the Society for Investigative Reporting. Right? New organizations responded to the spurt of morally inspired critical journalism by those journalists who had internalized the Watergate experience and sought to externalize its model. You got federal crime investigators, lawyers, and policemen forming white collar crime units throughout the United States. You had prosecutorial resources shifted away from conventionally defined lower-class criminals to high-status office holders in public and private domains. It became an established a priori conviction that many city, state, and federal prosecutors that office holders may very well commit crimes against the, product, the public and we should ferret them out and prosecute them. And the citizens must remain morally alert. So... Following Watergate, we got authority was critically examined at every institutional level of American society. The Boy Scouts rewrote their constitution to emphasize not just loyalty and obedience, but also critical questioning. The judges of the black Miss America beauty pageant were accused of personalism and bias. All these professional groups rewrote their codes of ethics. Student body officers of high schools and universities were caught to task after little scandals were created. City councilors and mayors were exposed in every city, great and small. And through it all, the vividness of Watergate's impure symbols remained strikingly intact. Now, the spirit of Watergate eventually subsided. Nixon had ridden a backlash against the left. And now there's a backlash against the reform movement that Jimmy Carter embodied. Ronald Reagan is swept into office on many of the old backlash issues that even in the Reagan press. to begin his presidency by promising the American people, I will never lie to you. He ended up by making a strong presidency his principal campaign slogan. By the time Reagan became president, he could openly disdain any conflict of interest laws. But the Iran Contra affair of 1986-87 demonstrated both sides of the Watergate affair. These events never reached the crisis proportions of Watergate, but without the memory of Watergate, Doubtful the administration's actions would have been so easily and quickly transformed into a mass major affair. Then 10 years later, another American president learned this lesson with uh, Monica Gate in a much harder way. So the bottom line is scandals are not born, they are made. Even if this knowledge is less precise than our biological understanding. What people suffer from is an anxiety disorder related to traumatic stress, something like a real-time version of PTSD. There are therapies to treat this condition, chemical and interpersonal, 
but nothing can prevent it from occurring. Fear of biological danger and death and maintaining social isolation to prevent it trigger emotional trauma. Feeling physically vital and emotionally connected to others is essential to our psychological security. There is, however, another level of trauma that COVID has triggered. While there's a lot of talk around it, it's rarely been explicitly thematized either by experts or by people in the weeds of everyday COVID life. Yes, trauma is biological and emotional, but it can also be social, challenging the collective identity that anchors a group's cultural security. The stories we have been telling ourselves about ourselves are turned upside down. Okay, so I've been reading some books by Patrick B-A-E-R-T, Bayert. He's from, he is from, uh, is he from Belgium? Okay, I think he's the guy of the, he's the guy of Okay, so I've been reading books on the sociology of intellectuals. And uh, one of them came out in 2016. Public intellectuals in the global arena, professors or pundits. So I was also reading on pundits. And uh, I think the best thing I read is that we should classify pundits on the basis of their entertainment value. So Patrick Bayet, his underlying perspective on, on intellectuals is positionism so we're all but his focus is on intellectuals in particular we're always trying to back prior to the 1950s prior to the 1960s we had authoritative public intellectuals so they thrive in a very particular setting people like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell right they thrive in societies in which a significant section of the population values intellectual life and in which the cultural and intellectual capital is concentrated within a small elite so they thrive in a hierarchical educational context with hierarchical referring to a clear distinction not only between elite institutions and other higher education establishments also between high and low status disciplines so authoritative public intellectuals exist independently of academic appointments because of independent resources gained from family wealth or successful exploitation of the media of the time book writing print journalism in the first half of the 20th century broadcasting in the second half so authoritative intellectuals authoritative public intellectuals surface when the academic setting is amorphous with limited specialization when social sciences are poorly professionalized it's a very specific context, but authoritative public intellectuals like Jean-Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell had a field day. They were steeped in high-profile disciplines like philosophy and mathematics. They had the confidence of an elite upbringing. They spoke to a wide range of social and political issues without being criticized for their dilettantism. But what has changed since then? Philosophy has lost status. People can no longer make sense of it. The analytic philosophy that, that dominates the Anglo world make makes no sense to ordinary people 
the, 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 the trends in philosophy, such as postmodernism, neo-pragmatism, uh, just undermine the, the supposed superiority of philosophy over other vocabularies. We've got uh, John Dewey's pragmatism, which is not really a big crowd pleaser. And then we've got all these developments outside of philosophy. So the social sciences have emerged since the 1950s as a significant force. They've been professionalized. So it's more difficult for philosophers or others without appropriate training and expertise in the social sciences to make authoritative claims about the nature of life. So ethicists and philosophers reason from their feelings, right? Social scientists are supposedly data-driven. So social scientists have proven to be much more useful and to have much more prestige and much more funding than philosophers and ethicists and clergy. So we've got a massive expansion in the ranks of professional social scientists. So there are now lifelong specialists in the areas that public intellectual philosophers used to comment on. And these social scientists are much better placed to contest these generalist interventions and call them what they are, uninformed and superficial. Also, we have higher educational levels for larger sections of society. So the odd distinction between intellectual elite and the rest no longer holds to the same extent. With higher education comes growing skepticism towards epistemic and moral authority. So intellectual life tends to consistently develop in ways that make it more and more abstract and reflexive. Reflexive means how do I know what I know? To what extent is my situation, my upbringing, my perspective? To what extent is the observer an integral part of the data? So more higher education, you get more skepticism, more recognition of the fallibility of knowledge, and more awareness of the existence of alternative perspectives. So the authoritative public intellectuals would speak above and at their audience, and that's no longer acceptable. So print and broadcast media become less deferential. They are more willing to challenge the statements of politicians and other public figures. And this is assisted by the arrival of journalists with higher education and subject specialism. So we've got all these social forces working against the authoritative public intellectual. So what has emerged in its place? The vlogger, right? And we've got expert public intellectuals. These usually public intellectuals drawing on their professional knowledge derived from their research in social and natural sciences. And then they will engage with wider social and political issues that go far beyond their narrow expertise. Social scientists are much better placed to act as expert public intellectuals. They are equipped with well-rehearsed methods and specializations in analyzing contemporary social and political phenomena. And then we have the rise of the dialogical public intellectual. That's the vlogger. Right. Contrary to both authoritative and expert public intellectuals, dialogical public intellectuals do not assume a superior stance towards their public. Do you see me standing here assuming a superior stance toward you? No, I am here in dialogue. Right? I believe in radical love and inclusion. Right? I am the vlogger as dialogical public intellectual. Right? I present myself as an equal. I've got as much to learn from you, bro. Philosophy, as it's practiced in the academy, is increasingly removed from the rough and tumble of contemporary society. When we had that big economic crash, that global financial meltdown in 2008, didn't have many philosophers speaking out in a way that uh, resonated with, with the public. So in the wake of the collapse of communism, the general public has also become much more wary of theories about what a future society should look like. 
And uh, now we've got bloggers and vloggers. We're, we're channeling the voice of the people. We're offering a more intimate, personal kind of authority in place of the impersonal authority of journalists. So what we assert through the use of, of, of that message is, is that there's no difference between ourselves and the audience. So we've got a democratic form of positioning, right? And this provides intellectuals with the necessary credibility to disseminate their ideas. So the strategic advantage of the dialogical public intellectual in the current constellation explains his rise in various domains. So the whole notion of positioning is a significant component of the story. Laponius is in the house. Wow, speaking of a dialogical public intellectual, we've got Laponius in the house. Man, I have streamed like, Forty is so aggressive tonight, I wonder what's up. I'm just excited by these books I've been reading. And I read this great essay by law professor Paul Horwitz, The Blogger as Public Intellectual, right? This came out in this 2016 book. Have the internet and the blogosphere and the YouTube, the YouTubes, opened up new vistas for public intellectuals? Do public intellectuals acting as bloggers and vloggers operate any differently than do traditional public intellectuals? taking advantage of other conventional communications media. The public intellectuals have benefited from the rise of communications media such as radio, TV, but the blog offers unique benefits. And we are opening up new vistas. So the ethic of the blog is made up of three core qualities, immediacy, connectivity, and feedback. Right? Blogospheric and vlogging norms encourage quick reactions to current events, to hot takes, whether these events are occurring in one's own life or across the world. A blogger or vlogger who sits on an event or an idea risks having that idea or news item become stale. Stale is a problem in a quickly moving environment like YouTube and blogging, where there are countless competitors, all of whom operate at low cost and are equally capable of being accessed instantly by readers and viewers. So the blogosphere and the vlogosphere are no place for idle and contemplative writers and vloggers. If you have more to say about something you couldn't always write a new post later. In the meantime, the race goes to the swiftest. Immediacy, however, is no guarantee of depth. The faster one's reactions, the less likely they are to contain any depth at all. Many blog posts, in light of the desire to be first to link to a new story, become simple aggregation posts, posts that do no more than link to a story or to commentary on other blogs without adding any content other than the obligatory interesting or read the whole thing. Initial posts may promise later posts offering more and deeper analysis, but such promises are often forgotten in the press of events or superseded by other developments. That's great stuff. I, I hate to 
hate to turn it off. I mean, it's pretty hard. Right. What are some of the downsides of uh, public intellectuals taking to YouTube and to blogs? Many public intellectuals talk about events that are not within their expertise. Though there will be time when genuine experts are quick to respond to an event with valuable analysis, there is no guarantee there will be any faster than an ever larger number of non-experts who will be happy to bloviate with stunning rapidity on issues about which they know little or nothing. That's why I look around at the other vloggers and I think, come on, you blowhards. You're just bloviating on issues on which you know nothing. Intellectuals are often captive to their own passions, especially when they're responding in real time. Now, some expert intellectuals are skilled at communicating to a general educated audience. I've got 14 viewers right now. Others are not. And non-experts may be more eloquent or provocative, even especially if they lack more than surface knowledge of the subject. Yes, I look around at all these people vlogging and, and they hardly ever read a book, man. Come on. Come on, man. The race for the attention of the viewer goes not only to the swiftest, but also to the most interesting and provocative. There's no guarantee that the winners will be mostly thoughtful or expert writers. If anything, the ongoing academization of expertise makes this less likely to happen. Academic work encourages habits of mind and habits of writing that limits one's audience to other academics and other specialists within one's own field. That's my problem. Here I've got in the chat, I've got like 14 viewers and 12 probably have PhDs. To become an academic is a time-consuming enterprise. It takes years to be credentialed as an academic, still more to gain an academic reputation. Gaining that reputation requires the academic to write specifically for his peers in a format that is not accessible, either in terms of style or content, in straight physical and financial terms, in terms of the forum of the publication. Even in the internet age, academic journals, journals are expensive and hard to find. We write on narrow topics and we write to be read and understood by the few, not the many. So the blogosphere and the blogosphere is unquestionably a boon for the would-be public intellectual. It is a counterweight to the academization of intellectual output that created barriers to the flourishing of public intellectuals. It offers room to the non-academic public intellectual and it lowers the opportunity cost of engaging in general public intellectual work by academics. It democratizes the function of the public intellectual. It uh, offers a way around the traditional gatekeepers, allows a much wider range of people to make genuine contributions to a true dialogue. This is a place of radical love and inclusion. The narrative of public intellectuals in decline that was so much in vogue a mere decade or so ago is now in need of considerable revision. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, see what some of our greatest uh, public intellectuals are talking then about. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. Then you win. Nick can no longer ignore the righteous truth of the Kino Casino gospel, the PPP gospel. And he's being forced to address it, trying to laugh it off. He's just fat. He's just fat. Worse, he's a cokehead. This, they'll never turn on me. I was I was in the debate club. Well, little nipples, I'm sorry to say, but I think people are starting to smell the bullshit. You see the movement's a scam. It's a lie. 
you're under investigation. You got to testify January 6th, turn over all the documents. And, you know, the optics of saying you're an incel and you're creating 10,000 terrorists. Oh, it washes over me. So not, it's exciting. It's not exciting to mention that there is something at the end, end of the show, very end of the show. Have you ever seen someone felt themselves? It's bad. It. It's fucked, guys. Today's episode is wild. It goes deep. Everything has come to fruition. Who knew one tweet? They'll never let you in. Hashtag El Chapo turned into the end of a man's life. Really? And by the way, he was supposed to fly down and do kill stream over our time slot because we now are the official owners of this time slot. I'm going to fly down. He gets felted by the airline. They cancel it and put it the next day. They put it the next day. <laughs> like it's one. And then he goes, looks like I'm going to try some of these early. And he puts a picture of a, of, of, of a, a pack of cigars. But then people, you know what they did? They put dildos instead and started retweeting that. So it looked oh, like no. I'm going to try out these early. And it's a bunch of black dildos. Oh, no. Ralph's taking Bro. it up. Okay, speaking of public intellectuals, there are some downsides to public intellectuals there, like uh, Hino Casino and Race Worski, right? Much of public intellectual blogging and blogging routinely involves a good deal of illegitimate trading on authorities. On authority, many academics are wrongly convinced that they are smart about everything, not just their own corner of their own subject. Now, some public intellectuals carefully limit their public writing to their own area of academic specialization, but many write about the same broad political and cultural subjects that all public intellectuals turn to, and in doing so, they are more than happy to flaunt their academic credentials, no matter how irrelevant they are to the subject at hand. Many public intellectuals are also capable of being ruled by the passions. And even though vlogging public intellectuals are much more likely to find a wider audience for their work, that audience is not necessarily going to be much more politically diverse. So... When you grip by the passions, the immediacy that is one of the core aspects of the ethic of blogging exacerbates these tendencies by removing even the slightest time for reflection and incentivizing intellectuals to write quickly. In the grip of their convictions, they are less likely to write with humility or to second-guess themselves. They are more likely to make unnecessary predictions, to adopt an unwarranted air of certainty, assume the worst of their opponents, and write with a hot-tempered voice. See what's happening to Kino Casino, Andy Worski here. Otherwise... These these are men are known for for their gravitas, for their their deep learning, but they're they're in the grip of their passions. Another downside to public intellectuals vlogging and blogging is uh, the evanescence, the fleeting nature of the blogosphere and the vlogosphere. Now, notice that many academic legal scholars are successful in the blogosphere, also economists do really well in the blogosphere. So much of human activity and current events intersects with law and economics, so they never lack for subjects. Legal academics, more than social scientists, tend to be intellectual parasites. They borrow tools and perspectives from whatever field of knowledge seems handy or trendy. So the fast turnaround that the blogosphere prefers is made easier for the lawyer by their main skill, which is to engage in skillful, if often half-informed, logic chopping. The ass in lore. Oh, yo, yo, holy shit. Now, it's crazy. Now, before we do uh, a cater in, 
I just want to uh, uh, show you all something, something that was being passed around. So y'all want to know, so what is Ralph's connection with Medicare? Well, Medicare helped blow up uh, his show, as we all know. And then slowly, as Ralph started fucking up, Medicare less and less would show up, right? Till we hit this. I'm going to pull this up here. Ashton, you may or may not have seen this. All right. Let's have a look. All right. Here we go. This is from an old kill stream here. All right. Do you hey. see this on your screen? I, I see it. Um, uh, I'm not right. sure if I can believe what I'm I'm reading. <laughs> but, uh, okay, let's... Uh, I actually haven't seen this shit. I've been kind of busy this week. I got my new place set up. Shit's going fucking really good for people. Hell yeah. Life's back on track, folks. He doesn't have to sleep on a couch anymore, folks. The and then we have some donos to. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, bro. Uh, <laughs> here we go, everyone. Check this out. That golden voice, the docile tones of of the internet aristocrat. While I'm hitting it, yeah, I'd, I'd probably I'd much rather hit it. <laughs> Wait. Is he fantasizing about Jim's velvety voice here? Is yes! Pumps his dumper? <laughs> wait, Ralph, no! Wait, wait, what? wait. Hang on. This is from 2015, by the way. <laughs> he's, a, he's a farmer in Minnesota, so he's he's probably got muscles. He's probably, stuff. like, strapping as fuck. He looks yeah. like a... Well, Jake Gyllenhaal off Brokeback Mountain or some shit. Yeah, What's no. his example? Jake of an attractive... Oh, first, of all, first of all, I've never even seen Brokeback Mountain. I didn't even know Jake Gyllenhaal was in it. But he's talking about Jake Gyllenhaal shirtless in Brokeback Mountain. That was his oh, example buddy. of an attractive male. He has to but pick... This, is, get, this like... isn't the first time, right? He called Milo Master Milo for years. Who well, would call an openly homosexual man Master Milo? What? Watch, there's more. There's another 20 seconds here. Check this out. And we know Milo, Milo's pretty hot for him, too, so there's a potential for a three-way there. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. T-U-M. Let's go now with another Jayden public intellectual. Beardson. The cum's dripping out of his ass. Whoa, God like, forbid. Hmm. What about, Can't, you know... What about what? what about new cell? What? Wait, are they trying to? Wait, what? Hang on, hang on. Let me just refresh uh, this. We're at four. We're at four twenty. Let's fucking go. Smoke your balls, boys. Uh, Come on, guys, get it together. Find some mods for this. No. No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I just get you're, you're subtracting. You're subtracting from the experience of the real incel. I don't care. What you call yourself? You can't call yourself an incel. It's not right. It oh, diminishes. <laughs> this sounds like some like SJW. Like you're subtracting from the real lived experience of trans people or black people. Your my lived experience is important, and you're taking that away from me. This is wrong. Like, oh, buddy, I didn't realize being a sexless retard was like such a core identity. There. <laughs> What's Beardson thinking? What it diminishes my <laughs> experience? I mean, how so, though? I mean, how does, it, how does it take away from you? I feel like you and I have gone through a lot of the same things. You're married. You were married. Like, <laughs> that's so... It's just not really quite the same. That'd be like you getting 
I don't know. That'd be like you getting a cold and you go into like a children's hospital and you go up to like an eight-year-old with leukemia with no hair and you're like, we're the same. <laughs> hey, we're both <laughs> sick, right? What? what? Well, that's on it. Wait. That's pretty fucking on it. He's like, I'm like an eight-year-old child with leukemia. You're, you're, you're ruining my living. Like, is his existence as an incel such suffering that he's suffering like a child with leukemia? Is that what he's saying? <laughs> Holy shit, man. What lack of pussy will do to a man? Like RPGs in chat. Um, yeah, he's confirming the Kai almost got, got kicked out of of America first because all he suggested was maybe we should be looking for women. You know, maybe that's yeah. a good idea. He's like the Bible says that we should be fruitful and multiply, and Jesus says in Matthew nineteen that this reason a man and a woman should join together, like it's the purpose of life. It's like no, Saint Paul said in First Corinthians six that it would be better if you weren't having sex. Well, yeah, but you have to look at the context of that book that Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, where the Romans are literally coercing Christians by killing their family members. Persecution of that time was so great. Talk about persecution today it was nothing like in Roman times. There's, there's in the United States, you're not being killed for being a Christian. So it's a false equivalency. You have to look at the context of when that letter was written and what it was about. And he still says in that letter, it would, it would be better if you weren't to be married because of the circumstance. However, because you burn with lust, I permit you to marry. That this is not a commandment. Oh, it's just baffling what Nick's coming up with. Then he takes Matthew 19, 12 out of complete context. The whole point of Matthew 19 is to establish marriage and the purpose for it. And show like our lives on this earth, the purpose for our lives is to come together with a woman and, and form a union and have children and raise a family. That's Matthew 19. He takes verse 12 about eunuchs out of context. It's like, see, guys, there's eunuchs that are made for... It's just sad. It's just sad. But we'll get to that when we get to the Kai clip stuff. But Nick doesn't even know. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's completely out of his depth when it comes to biblical scholarship. He just has no fucking clue because he doesn't care because he doesn't attend mass. All of you groipers know it, but you still worship him anyway. It's like your king. It's retarded. Anyway, let's let's continue. Doesn't this <laughs> fucking suck being sick? Man, I wish we were healthy. It's you. Know, <laughs> That's what you're doing. You know, I mean... I'm just, I'm just gonna steal the valor. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm playing in stolen valor here. Stolen virgin valor, you know, a VV. Like, imagine comparing being an incel to being a soldier that risks your life for the military. You know, conservatives are supposed to, for the most part, applaud the military. I know it's fashionable today. Oh, it's ugh. But I mean, most normal conservatives out there in the heartland love the troops and would find this very insulting. Again, this is supposed to be optical for normal people. Not. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's your, that's your, and that's so typical of you. You know, now I get it. Now I understand what the veterans must be like when you were doing that to the veterans. Talking about blood gulps, Iraq. Now I get it. Yeah, uh, you know what? Still, I'm just, I'm, uh, I am proclaiming stolen valor here. I demand my, uh, my incel discount at uh, Culver's. You know, um. <laughs> and I'm like the asshole that like confronts you and is like, oh really? You're an incel? Oh yeah. Where'd you serve? What, what regiment? What battalion, bro? This fucking uniform's not even real. <laughs> What board you learned at Fortune, bro? Huh? You are not gay. Even his own fans are donating, going, "Our culture is not your costume, Beardson." Even his own fans. But his his fans are like twisted, like mentally ill people. Right? They're like, "My incel is the culture." Oh, is uh, it? A, a bigger, blacker, and better than Beardson for ten says, "Girls have cooties. I'm ready to shoot up something." Help me, Nick. Um. Okay, <laughs> Mister Cuckold for five. Hope you're having a great night. Question for PPP. Were you ever a listener or watcher of True Capitalist Radio Ghost or Jesus chat line back in the day? Also, I'm taking a massive greasy dump and Andy is 
and Othello looking as more. Okay. I don't know about those shows. I don't think I've ever watched them. Um, have you? No. Never heard of them. Yeah, sorry about that, bud. And Polly the Frog 64. What's up, Polly? How you doing, man? Polly, uh, bro. Uh, he makes awesome videos. For three, Beard Son is not normal. Even Wignats understand the value of women. Women raise your kids and secure the future. What I said, what a sad, jaded, pathetic child. And Tony oh, Soprano but- for three. Can anyone confirm if Beard Son's... No, I'm not going to read that at all. Yeah, don't, don't read that. Yeah. Um, but no, imagine, right? Like, you want to attract people to a movement. And you're like, no, you won't get any women in this movement. You, you aren't going to aren't going to have any money you're not going to be successful you're just going to be a bitter incel with rage living in your mother's basement masturbating to cat boys and anime and you think that's going to sell to people use your fucking brain like sex sells like if we had if you had big titted fucking milker women in your movement maybe more men would want to join as it is all you have are queer cat boys and jaden's dumper oh oh (laughs) wow a casino supervisor for 10. Pearson should just go full Paul retard. He's already there with the incel mindset. I bet he's still supporting Trump unironically in 2022. Probably. And Rad Roberts for 420 saying, who remembers when Ralph blew his fucking lid at Nora when threatening to leave her for talking with Andy outside? I said that story on the uh, F Ralph Festival, actually. But yeah. Thank you everyone for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, what is it? <laughs> I'm literally that guy. I've literally become that guy. That like hothead meltdown in the fucking mall cafeteria because uh, insignias upside down and your fucking boots aren't tied right. Yeah, I got, I got my wedding ring on. <laughs> yeah, what's, that, what's that ring on, buddy? Huh? What's that ring? <laughs> yeah, yeah, meltdown in front I mean, of. Not joking, but this is how the movement actually operates. They're like, Connie, you have a girlfriend. Yeah, they were not mad at him. Deal. Yeah, like not at Dalton because he's married or whatever. Like, it's just some psychotic shit. Do they understand that if they don't have kids, the movement will die in this generation? Do do they understand that? Well, I was reading Patrick Buchanan's uh, Death of the West this week. I read it again because it's one of the foundational books of the America First movement and the paleoconservative movement. And the whole thing is about how the West is dying due to a declining birth rate and that women are going to have to have four children in order to support pensioners and the elderly in the future or else we're going to have mass immigration, which they're so opposed to. Then they're going to shame men for having wives and girlfriends and wanting to have children. It just doesn't make any sense. It's fucking retarded. And if Nick thinks he knows better than Pat Buchanan, Nick Nick Fuentes isn't fit to fucking carry Pat Buchanan's jockstrap. Nick Fuentes isn't fit to tie Patrick Buchanan's shoes. For fuck's sake. Get real. It's retarded. And, and we're not even memeing at all. Like the, uh, there is a, like a, a debate they had with Kai, like we said. It's like a full hour debate about this, about him having a a chick that he wants to stay with, and he's like, "No, I want to be with her because like the whole point is to have a family and blah blah blah." And Nick is at like adamant about his position that that having any type of the like, womanly figure in your life makes you uh, I don't even know like, against the movement. I guess I don't know. Like what? I don't understand. The movement their... is just about being a permanent child, like living in a Peter Pan land where you never grow up. Your mom makes you chicken tendies. You masturbate to porn all day. You have no real responsibilities. And the only thing you do is worship a fucking Mexican child on the internet. That's what it's about. Insane. The Auntie Ann's pretzel. I bet you, I bet you don't even know where Elliot Rogers was from, huh? You don't even know where he was from. <laughs> literally, literally. Why bring up <laughs> Elliot why bring Rogers? Up, why bring him up? Why? Why do this to yourself? Like You're you know? talking about creating 10,000 terrorists, talking about being an incel, and then you're bringing up Elliot Roger in a positive light. Oh. Where are the optics stuff? How does this appear uh, to normal was, people? It does. It's from uh, an island, right? <laughs> uh, 
was from California. Oh, <laughs> uh, Elliot Roger. Yeah. I'll still, yeah. I'll still never forget Sean got fucking hit up by the FBI because he said something like, uh, I'm going to turn this aisle into Isle of Vista or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Those are the good old He says those are the good old days. <laughs> good old days when your buddy got visited by the feds for talking about an incel terrorist in a positive way. Good old days. What the fuck? This is fucking crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> Every day. week it's like this. <laughs> I mean, more show stuff for us. We'll never run out, guys. We'll never run out. And we have other Jokers we want to go to, but it's just, it's difficult right now. The last two episodes has been rough. It's been too much content. We're like, okay, we'll push that for next week. Imagine being Beardson, right? And you're like in your mid-30s. You have to look up to and take your marching orders from some kid 10 years younger than you. You have to suck his penis all day, and he's literally just a fucking child. Real. Oh, Yeah. I'll say is this uh, in in a very narrow sense I actually don't think the family always necessarily makes a person stronger there's going to be a super extremely controversial claim that I'm no I'm going to get shit for it but and this is strictly for someone like me or people like me uh-huh. but if I go out and get married and have kids and I, some people might look at this and say oh that's very cynical or maybe materialistic or whatever but it's like if I go and get married and have kids like I'm a full-time revolutionary basically or activist awesome. <laughs> this kid streams on on not even on youtube anymore is talking about how he's a full-on revolutionary can you imagine nick fuentes picking up a rifle and like going into war he's talking like that like you can't talk like i'm a revolutionary i can't have a wife or kids because i'm gonna radically lay down my life for the lord that's fucking some no. psychotic shit dude it's just delusional it's not it's not attached to reality He's, how, is he, how is he revolutionary? He, he has his bank accounts frozen or removed. He actually was banned from Bank of America. He got all his Bitcoin and Ethereum fucking wiped by the feds. AFPAC is a fucking, it's straight up a doxing place for the feds. They're talking about like starting terrorism and all this horrible stuff. And they're like laughing about it. And then, then they're wondering, why are we banned off of stuff? I was just talking about how we should take over so-and-so and remove these so-and-so people on a boat. I don't know why you were banned. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because Nick's not that stupid, right? Talk about creating 10,000 terrorists and talk about being a revolutionary. Like, is he that stupid? Like, this is all going to be played at the hearing. This is all going to be used to entrap his followers. Get out now if you're still in. So crazy. By the way, I got a lot of DMs from people uh, today who are like done with Ralph. Like, they're always like, hey, man, congrats, congrats. Okay, I'm done with Ralph. Like, you know... I was trying to hold on. That's three people so far today. Viking Poodle for three. Got go, fellas. Thanks for the keynote. This has been one hell of a show. Thank you. And for another three, says the same thing. Sorry about that. Viking Poodle, thank you so much. And everyone who's been supporting the show today. Mad love today. Seriously, guys. And next week's going to be fucking wild. I have some skit ideas, Absolutely. too, for, t- for next week. People might roll their eyes at that. Oh, really? You're like a live streamer or whatever. But, like, think about it. If we're ah. committed to serious, ambitious political goals, um, and we're talking about drinking death like water, the Honestly. dynamic has actually changed a little bit. Said he's taught he's gonna drink death like water. Like you're you're not laying down your life for shit, buddy. You're I, talk like that. You're basically telling your followers they need to lay down their lives for you. That's fucking psychotic, man. It's one thing to tell people not to take the vax and lose their job. It's another thing to tell people to drink death like it's water, and that you're going to do that. Like, real son, wake up. 
who are in the fucking model UN. You are in the debate club. You are in, you're not a soldier. Why is he saying you're these not, things? Like, what's you're the not a killer? Like, you're not a killer, dude. You're not about that life. I'm not about that life either. Look at me. Look at you, Nick. You're not about that life. Like, get real. Fucking psychotic shit. When you enter in these familial responsibilities, you know, can someone go out there and be drinking death like water when they're married with 10 kids the same way that they can if they're yes they do every fucking day soldiers in america oh. <laughs> fly to like to, to afghanistan and shit and leave their families behind what do you mean but wait a minute what what's gonna do more for the movement or for whites or for what what's gonna do more having 10 children and being a productive pillar of society or going out and getting arrested at a january 6th event saying that you're gonna shoot up a government building i wonder what's gonna do more for you know america for your people for your nation it's just retarded this is why like the gop destroys them as much as like shit you could talk about them they at least like promote families and you know like 33 saying i gotta be an incel because a family will only weigh me down that sounds like girl boss feminists uh Mussolini had a ton of kids uh Radnu had a wife and a daughter and and franco too uh, Air wrecked Baggins for one. The full undeleted kill stream you played a clip from earlier. Took a patience to get this replay. Oh, I'm not gonna watch the kill stream. Like, there's no way I'm watching no. the kill stream, dude. Okay, he's uh, watching it. Yeah. All right. Let's let's briefly we'll play some of Nick. He's addressing the Kino Casino on America First. Once again, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they win. We're now at stage two. He can no longer ignore the success of the show. Let's face it, we actually have way more organic engagement than Nick does. I would bet, honestly, we have more nightly viewers for this show than Nick had this past day. Like, like for real. Like, it might say 8,000, but look at the chat. Ours is moving slow faster. Yeah. We, we have slow mode turned on. So. And Tuesday, so, I don't see your donation. It didn't pop up. Sorry, yeah. Tuesday. But thank you for trying to support us. We really appreciate it. But, uh, yeah, check it out. Um, Hitler6000 says, hey, Nick, really great to have you back, man. Did you see that awesome. fat Wignad and Andy Worski had that female super chatter on? Like, a group of real winners. No, no, a 30-year-old Worski. Super chatter's name is Hitler6000. <laughs> he's calling us the Wignads? You know? Something doesn't make sense there, bro. Oh, oh. On Psychmedge will simply not do. Yeah, that, that, whole, that whole thing is just such a, such a shit show. It's great. <laughs> People love it. I'm having a great time. You're having a great time. The internet is, is enjoying it. A lot of podcasts have talked about it. Well, look at our viewer number. 14. Now, Be careful now. Now we are careful. the Wignats. Yikes. W Wignat yeah. tribe. Okay. Oof. You take a look at my detractors, and it's almost an argument for how awesome I am in itself. You know, you've got it's a delusion. drug addict and a fat guy, and then you've got this psycho, and they're all doing a stream. He's talking uh, about Daisy. Yeah, Daisy's a psycho. Oh, yeah. she's banned from AF. Oh, Daisy. We'll get her on next week, too, to ask for her, we'll, her take. We'll get her on. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the face of the, the loyal opposition to America first. It's literally The loyal opposition. Oh. <laughs> it's a way to describe it. It's like, no, Nick. Like, we just happen to think that you're retarded. Yeah. It's, it's funny to make fun of you, and there are people that will pay us to make fun of you, but we're going to do it. Right, like his oh, entire just... wait, his entire streams are making fun of women and liberals and the legacy media. Our thing is find idiots to make fun of. We're the same. It's the same fucking show. 
but ours is better by, by leagues because we, we are trying to be the leaders of the white race and teaching men that working out is a negative. And the guy is seething here. Like, he's clearly pissed. Oh. I, he's clearly pissed. He's good. I love it. He's giving so, me, like, free promotion. Yeah. Like, what a, what a dumbass. What a dumbass. And people said for years, PPP will never get Nick to respond to him. <laughs> Nick will always just ignore a bottom feeder like PPP. Oh, oh how times have changed, huh? Oh, how times have changed, doubters. Continue. So I oh, we have a groiper here, Lethal Brawler for three. Organic viewership. Y'all just clout chase Nick. I met both Nick and Anime right as <laughs> IRL, and they pass on free pussy while y'all stay desperate. Go. Oh. Pal, yeah, yeah. I'll do the classic, Ralph. Thanks for the $3. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, drug addict and uh yeah, no i wish i was an incel like like nick you know i, I wish i like this is the thing you win. Right? Like, you, you, win. Can, you can talk about drug addict fatty like this is the thing i can get on an airplane i can have a bank account i'm not being investigated by the feds i don't have to testify before congress I'm not an incel like i don't know nick um you're having a tough time bro you're having a tough time oh. i'll say psycho and everybody got on my case they're like oh this girl asked him out he had a meltdown and then she goes on the stream and she's like 30 and on antidepressants <laughs> you know See, even he liked the segment you know he's laughing at it he watched the whole segment he watches the show he enjoys it but he's like a girl asked him out and he got mad that's not normal that's not normal. Who heard him? It he's isn't gay. normal. He's this. He's broken. It's he's this. It's not normal. None of us were saying that he needed to date Daisy. We were just saying, like, just politely be like, I'm not interested. Super Chats isn't the correct forum. Move on with your show where you're discussing serious politics. It was 10 minutes. It's 13 minutes long. You know, that's what we were like. The, it was the seed that we made fun of. Not If you went, no, thank you. There would be no segment like that. Okay. And now he's yelling at her. I think she won't be invited into the AF fucking penthouse yeah. anymore. She's been canceled. Oh, I don't think so. And then she's 30 and on antidepressants. Go figure. Hey. Go figure. So, I think Nick might need antidepressants. Yeah, that's my life. That's my life. But whatever. So, yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Three people wonder why I am the way that I am. They're like, hey, someone, some girl, I've never seen a real man. I've never seen a real straight man melt down when a girl asks him out. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that's a true, true. He just made an impersonation of a very poignant point you yeah. made. Even if it's like a fat woman, like a total whale that's ugly, like, oh, you don't have a total breakdown about it. You like rage at her for 13 minutes. Like, no, I'm just not feeling it tonight, sweetie, or whatever the fuck. You know, like it's, it's just not normal what he's about. And he'll even admit that he's not normal. But he's <sighs> supposed to be the optical solution that appeals to normal people. It doesn't. <laughs> Started. 30 years old on antidepressants, by the way. Go figure. So, <laughs> I'm 23. Yeah, let me shack up with someone seven years older than me. It's just, what is there even to say? All context removed at the point, you know? The whole gay yeah. stuff, everything, the being an incel, and then seeding. Like that is, it's been a culmination of everything. It's not just that one clip. I mean, we all, I'm preaching to the choir, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And it's some, some fat boy, and again, some guy that's on drugs, really. Some, some guy who's literally... Two years, so, two point, um, two years and six months clean, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Even if I was on drugs, who cares, you know? But here's the point. Like, number one, my weight is correctable. Nick's lack of height and Beardson's lack of height is not. 
will always be little dwarven manlets overcompensating for the fact that nobody loves them, okay? Whereas I could lose the weight if I fucking wanted to, okay? Second of all, Nick himself, I'm pretty sure, is flying on cocaine or Adderall. A lot of the mannerisms he has are somebody who is on drugs. So I'm not surprised. Like, it's just retarded. Literally 60 IQ, drug addict. So that's fine. That's fine. You know, you look at the people that hate me and they're they're just losers. You know, where's the person that hates me that's actually a winner? You know? You can't go on a plane and the feds <laughs> seized your bank account and you were banned from Bank of America and you aren't allowed on any mainstream platforms. Who's the winner? Nick? I don't know. Like, what about uh, Tim Heidecker? Isn't he a winner? Isn't he like a TV show, like big time celebrity that people love and adore, a multimillionaire? Yeah. He hates Nick and shit all over him. I mean, you might disagree with Tim's politics. I disagree with Tim's politics. But to try and say he's a loser and Nick's the winner, or that Louis Theroux is the loser and Nick's the winner, or that Bake's the winner over Louis. Like, Bake tried to say that Louis is jealous of him. It's a total projection. Everything that Louis has, Bake wants. Fame, positive recognition, accolades, money. It's just insane. No? It's, it's sad. Can someone point that out to me? Because it would be a great argument against me if the people that were criticizing me weren't, like, you know, fat. <laughs> weren't fat and uh, addicted to drugs or just plain stupid. So, okay. okay. You know, Andy Worski has got to be, like, the dumbest man on the internet. <laughs> I think even the people that like at him least, that. At least I think Andy knows how to pick up cues when a woman is throwing herself at you. Buying you pizza, like, wants to fuck. At least Andy knows the social cues, right? Who's the real retard, Nick? At least I could do some mainstream stuff and be fine and make money doing it and do what I, I want to do without having my bank account fucking being banned. Be a federal informant. You know, <laughs> like, like everything. Okay, enough with those public intellectuals. You probably want to know, Forty, what book have you been reading? And I've been reading Conflict in the Academy, a study in the sociology of intellectuals. This fascinating book came out in 2015. So in... According to a review, in late 1980, a minor dispute at Cambridge University became headline news. The question was whether or not the young lecturer Colin McCabe, whose work was heavily influenced by recent developments in structuralist and post-structuralist theory. So structuralism in literary criticism is different than structuralism in international relations. So in literary theory, structuralism challenges the belief that a work of literature reflects a given reality. Instead, a text is considered constitutive linguistic conventions and situated among other texts. So structuralist critics analyze material by examining underlying structures such as characterization or plot, attempt to show how these patterns are universal, could be used to develop general conclusions about both individual works and the systems from which they emerged. So the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss was an important champion of structuralism, as was Roman Jacobson. Northrop Fry's attempts to categorize Western literature by archetype as some basis in structuralist thought, so structuralism regards language as a closed, stable system. And by the late 1960s, it had given way to post-structuralism. So the so-called Colin McCabe affair had swelled to heroic proportions, drew vast media attention, became invested with considerable moral and symbolic significance, generating waves that are still felt in English faculties today. Here are some Highlights from this fascinating 2015 book. So we tend to view social conflict as a dysfunctional, destructive, even pathological form of social interaction, harming individuals and groups through tearing the cohesive social fabric. But social conflict is able to serve a variety of productive social functions. It allows for the communication of dissatisfaction, defines group boundaries, and provides an impetus for more adequate forms of social organization. 
increase the social integration for in-group members. And so once the McCabe affair became public, social pressure increased the participants to take sides. So rather than simply revealing pre-existing divisions, the controversy created and solidified them and strengthened and simplified antagonistic identities. So public disputes by their nature garner attention and they generate grist for the journalistic mill. And this attention enables participants to engage in what Norman Mailer called advertisements for myself. So Colin McCabe's subsequent career, three years later, he was head of production at the British Film Institute. Then he was professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and later on professor of English at Exeter University. And it renders the notion of him as a victim somewhat of a misnomer, as he readily admits the McCabe affair enabled me to leave Cambridge trailing clouds of glory and an overinflated reputation, he writes. So his academic writing benefited from events. His publishers quickly cottoned on to the commercial value of what was described as Cambridge University's worst academic controversy for a generation. With impressive speed and only two weeks after the Senate House discussion, his publishers took out an advertisement in the the TLS, that's a big uh, book review, the daring potential customers with the explicitly elusive strapline, controversial and original, three books by Colin McCabe. So English literature began to develop as a discipline just after the Great War, just after World War I. It rapidly eclipsed the classics, meaning learning Greek and Latin as the central humanities discipline, with the Cambridge School characterized by its critical and analytical approach to literature in distinction to Oxford's philological and scholarly one, philological, the meaning of words. So the influential, zealous, Bolshevik, and highly opinionated F.R. Levis was key in championing the essential importance of the discipline in Cambridge and beyond and established what became the orthodox, humanistic approach to analyzing literature until the 1960s. Now, experience of World War II provoked suspicion toward this belief in the humanizing forces of an education in English literature, since it was now impossible to ignore how little humanistic acculturation had done to avert the barbarity of war. We now know that a man can read Goethe or Rilke in the evening. He can play Bach and Schubert and go to his day's work at Auschwitz in the morning to say that he has read them without understanding or that his ear is gross is can't. The forces of pluralism slowly battled their way into the study of English literature in the 1960s and 70s, especially outside of Oxford and Cambridge. So novelist and literary professor Malcolm Bradbury described his own career through English departments. During the 1950s, when I was a student, the dominant mood in the study of English literature was a moral and humane one. Literary studies were the essential humanist subject, but with the expansion and increased professionalization of the subject, the tune changed. There was a hunger for literary science. By the 1960s, a volatile mix of linguistics, psychoanalysis, semiotics, meaning the study of words and symbols, Structuralism, Marxist theory, and reception aesthetics replaced the order moral humanism. So the literary text moved towards the status of a phenomenon, a socio-psycho-cultural, linguistic, and ideological event arising from the offered competencies of language, the available taxonomies of narrative order, the permutations of genre, the sociological options of structural formation, and the ideological constraints of the infrastructure. And the emergence of theory in English departments was not merely an import from abroad, such as most obviously France, but was also an import from other disciplines, such as the social and human sciences. So wider society after World War II also began to turn away from poems, plays, and novels as their primary source of cultural expression and experience. And a minority of the Cambridge English faculty suggested those media 
could get attention. McCabe was interested in cinema and developed uh, screen theory. So the expansion of the term culture to cover films and TV and practices and creations beyond the restricted zones, what we called high culture, was a characteristically social, scientific, and anthropological move. Now, F.R. Levis had been clear that genuine culture could only ever be the preserve of a gifted, tiny minority whose role it was to protect against the majority's philistinism where to guide, where possible guide the cultural discrimination of the masses. Do you take notes while reading? Yes, I often do, John Smith. That's how I retain. So, though more consequential than the Colin McCabe affair as an event, the Watergate scandal was even more simple in its symbolic dimension. The struggle was over whether the facts of the break-in to the Watergate Hotel were to be told at the level of everyday goals and interests, grubby politics as usual, as the Nixon administration wished, or as eventually took place at the more sacred levels of social norms and values, hence signaling the need for fundamental purification and renewal. So the majority of the actors in the Colin McCabe affair, these English literature academics at Cambridge, made their living from the professional analysis and use of the English language. So they were therefore highly sensitive to the power of drama, oration, and rhetoric, as well as the seduction of linguistic aesthetic that added to the quality and theatricality of the events, rendering them particularly amenable to dramaturgical analysis. The argumentation by its very nature has a tendency toward rhetorical escalation, process which often triumphs over whatever pacifying intentions actors may start out with. So the pro-camp in this fight was the camp that supported Colin McCabe, the Marxist and structuralist, getting tenure teaching English at Cambridge University. And they secured the Senate House at Cambridge as the stage upon which the main debate would be acted out. So Cambridge is a highly ritualistic university, and the Senate House in particular holds a privileged place within the university's ritualistic geography. It is the university's burning core it is distinctly hallowed ground. So you've got a stage and you've got tendencies towards the willing suspension disbelief. Now this is only successful if the actors collude in playing by the script, which accords with the set. And the antis, those who wanted to get rid of Colin McCabe, had no intention of doing so. So the antis counter strategy was to lower the tone of the proceedings, to desacralize the event, deprive it of its ritual status, expose the performance as mere playing games and, and fake drama, and return it to the level of the profane. So I remember often when I've been in trouble with the rabbis, they, they create you know very sacred occasions to you know, drill into me you know, how, how dangerous my writing or my behavior is. But one tactic to return the proceedings to the level of profane is to use humor and casual indifference to undermine the prose efforts towards impression management. So in contrast to the sacred and solemn tone set by the austere neoclassical building, the jocular triviality with which many of the antis delivered their own performance signaled to the 600-strong audience not only a sense of security in the knowledge that Colin McCabe's supporters had already lost the battle, but also that the McCabe affair had nothing at all of the sacred about it. So humor, especially when it is widespread, evokes... Uh, collective and contagious laughter and has an advantage in symbolic struggles. It encourages shared effervescence. It solidifies a sense of community amongst those who are in on the joke and it avoids the necessity to employ outright invective, which runs the risk of losing favor with one's audience. So the use of humor 
if effective in eliciting amusement, acts as a shield and an alibi for degrees of offense that would be unthinkable in its absence. So the capacity of humor to draw factions of the audience and perform it together in shared amusement, often combined with a variety of other rhetorical techniques such as sarcasm, insincere politeness, pretend sympathy, and surrealism, which draw their performative power from the dramatically potent realm of play. Now, audiences collude in determining a performance's dramatic success. I could not do this without you, right? I am the dialogical public intellectual, right? Performers know this. So a successful performance is a co-creation. I could not do this without you. You and me, we're making this show together. So I need your input. I need your feedback. I learn from you. So both sides of the social interface that constitutes a performance are required to play along for the symbolic communication to come off effectively. Do you even have reception aesthetics? Of course I do, bro. Okay, so for the pros case to hold legitimacy, that to raise the central issue at stake, McCabe's non-reappointment, to the level of the sacred, that to demonstrate that his failure to receive a permanent lectureship revealed that the central values of the faculty and of the university were under threat, right? So the higher values of fairness, intellectual openness, and pluralism had been violated. So they had to make the case that a crisis had occurred and that ritual purification and renewal is therefore necessary. Just like those who say you know, Russia invading Ukraine is not just some grubby, typical great power behavior. No, this is a crisis. We're, we're violating all these higher values, all these sacred values, and we need ritual purification and renewal. The counter strategy by the antis was to disrupt this projected definition of the situation and to desacralize McCabe's non reappointment by claiming that the decision was taken at the profane level of routine appointment considerations. So on the performance level, that so much attention was paid to the, these events was taken as an indication that something untoward must indeed have occurred. Then a decade following the departure of Colin McCabe, another affair exploded in Cambridge with the ultimately unsuccessful attempt to deny the university from awarding an honorary doctorate to the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. Sometimes our very collective existence seems called into question. Cultural trauma is a wound to us, however this us is defined. To take a commonplace example, in New Haven, where I live, it's been a great shock to the community that a restaurant named Clark's has permanently shut down. The gritty down at the heels landmark on Whitney Avenue had been a mainstay of Yale social life for 75 years. To give another example of more serious import, during the, crisis, the three months of crisis and shutdown, Many New Yorkers experienced the traumatic disappearance of their city. Can this be New York? People exclaimed at the sight of empty streets, darkened theaters, lifeless shops. But it's the national level of collective identity that concerns me here. The cultural trauma that is afflicting America, not as a collection of individual bodies or psyches, but as a social group. COVID has challenged the story Americans have long told themselves about the greatness of our nation. Okay, that will do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.